economics becomes this thing, well, you know, if we just sort of twist this dial and adjust this interest rate, um, we can we can somehow engineer prosperity. And that's that's just not true. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. It is always a pleasure to sit down here with leaders of our movement, a movement that is broader than a lot of people think. You know, one of the motivations of doing this show is to bring together people who are on the same page, but you know, maybe their political philosophy, their, their understanding of economics might be slightly different. That's really valuable in modern America, especially when we're conservatives. All of that to say that this week's guest is someone that I have not known long, but I know already you're going to really enjoy the conversation with. Jeff Dice is president of the Mises Institute based in Auburn, Alabama, which means that he's a great guy and it is a great institution with a long friendship with Heritage. Jeff, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Kevin. I told you you get bonus points for wearing a burnt orange tie. And that just means immediately we're going to have a great conversation. Okay, but this is a little different than the burn orange you're talking about. No, that's going to be Texas burn orange on this show. Everything that looks like orange is just <laughs> okay. burn orange. Is that fair? Okay, all right. Okay. Yeah, we might have we might have some very friendly differences of opinion, which is sort of by design because you just kind of, if I were to overgeneralize, represent one wing of the conservative movement, which is libertarian. I represent another wing of the movement, which is conservative. But in fact, we know that we have probably 95% overlap in what we believe, especially when it comes to philosophy and public policy. I told you off camera that if you put your hand on the spoon to stir the pot, that I was going to accelerate it. And here I am just okay. doing that on purpose. Okay. All that to say, we're going to have an extremely friendly conversation, as Heritage always does, with people on the center right and to the extent that we can, people on the left. But before we even get into that, Jeff, I just kind of have to know your story. How did you get to do what you're doing? Well, my story is just haphazard. Uh, my dad was a very uh, anti-tax guy. Um, so growing up around the house, there was some uh, the road to serfdom laying around, uh, some Ayn Rand books. And this uh, is in Orange County, around. California, yes. right? And of course, my mom wasn't so thrilled about the Rand because she thought I'd end up an atheist. Of course. And so I absorbed some of that. And uh, I had an older brother who was reading then, uh, at that point, a very early version of Reason magazine. Um, and so I guess I came up through, at the time, w w what were broadly libertarian circles. I think both, I think that word and that concept has morphed in bad ways. I, it's the same way uh, liberalism as a term and as a concept has morphed in bad ways. Nonetheless, you know, that was sort of my political upbringing. My philosophy was very free market in orientation, uh, kind of obnoxious, youthful uh, anarchism. You know, the idea, well, of course, drugs should be legal. Uh, of course, um, you know, gov there shouldn't be any government. Roads can be built, built privately. You know, the whole, the whole sort of gamut as I developed. And that was always a bit of a side position for me. I was busy going to law school and, and doing other things in my life. And and uh, back then, that was just one element, maybe, of your life, your personality. Uh, but then, as a very young guy, I was in undergrad when I met Ron Paul. He came to uh, Santa Ana, California, to a Ramada Inn. Uh, How in, fitting. When he, in 1988, it was no great shakes of a Ramada Inn. And uh, so I, I had sort of known of him and kept up with some of his staff members. And uh, just through some twists and turns, I ended up uh, working for him years later 
and uh, you know not being a lawyer during that period. Then I went back to lawyering, uh, and then um, had an opportunity, sort of out of the blue, to go work at the Mises Institute. It wasn't something I had planned. Uh, it's just something that happened. I gather your mom's concerns about you becoming an atheist were not well-founded because I don't well, think I th that you're an atheist. I think they were very well-founded at the time. Oh, at the time. Yes. Okay. Uh, I mean, you know, I guess I'm a, I'm a, a, my wife is a very strong Catholic and uh, I think she would like me to become, to join her as a very strong Catholic. So I'm in a bit of a, of a murky period personally. Well, we'll, uh, We'll, we'll leave that journey to uh, private conversations in the future, which I look forward to. But from this Catholic revert, uh, I, I would be on your wife's side okay. and encourage you there. But of course, as, as you know, in our movement and certainly in our audience, we have people of all kinds of faith traditions. As I just mentioned to our interns, though, and this might be a really good pivot point from, from your story to the, the movement more broadly— I'm mentioning to our new class of interns at Heritage, we have 55, 60 interns each semester. And I said, look, you're going to get a great experience, professional skills and all of those things. But far more important than that is, the, and I promise this is connected to what we were just talking about, is the seriousness with which every colleague of ours at Heritage takes in the, in the care of the human person of an intern. And I said, at the root of that is faith. And I know half of you, speaking to people who are between 18 and 23, mm -hmm. don't go to church. You might even be hostile to it, and you're going to call home tonight and say, you'll never guess what Dr. Roberts told us. Go to church. I did say that, because I think that religiosity, faith, is at the core of being conservative. And frankly, one of the reasons I left my libertarian days behind when I was on the tenure track as a history professor at New Mexico State many years ago now is because of a religious awakening, conversion, reconversion, reversion that my wife and I had. I say that not to stir the pot, and certainly not to put you on the spot. That's not, not what I do. But to have a conversation about this. Is that one of the friction points between libertarianism and conservatism today, is, is the importance of faith, especially in the public square? Oh, definitely. There's a, I think there's a lot of hostility towards religion in libertarian circles. Uh, there's no question about that. But the, the thing is, is everybody needs something to believe in or to animate them. And we know that with young people today. So if it's not religion, the question becomes, what replaces God? And I don't think the West has come up with a very good answer to that question. And so young people naturally uh, go are, are attracted to the more appealing uh, you know, variants of progressivism. It's telling them they can worship a god of equality. They can worship a god of um, redistribution. They can worship a god of, of vengeance against the oppressive classes. Um, you know, that's all pretty appealing to a young person who's looking for something. And on, on the flip side, you know, the old materialism that might have satisfied many of their boomer parents, that's not so easy to, to attain anymore. You know, just uh, back in the 70s, you could go get a 2.8 at State U and still become a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or a CPA. You know, nowadays, um, you know, even buying a condominium can be out of reach. You know, uh, getting a good paying job can be exceedingly difficult. And as a result of that, getting married and having children can just seem like this almost impossible thing to young people. And so, you know, we can we can sort of blame them. But, but the bottom line is if they feel less optimistic than we did, I consider myself Gen X, if they feel less optimistic than we did, I mean, we got to worry about that. 
we, we have to take that to heart and say, oh my gosh, you know, the story of America is generations doing better than the previous generation. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I, I, obviously, I think capitalism and culture are the two main ones. But boy, oh boy, if that's changed, uh, n- not only in terms of the actual outcomes of how these younger people are going, going to turn out, but in, t- in terms of their mindset. In other words, if they are pessimistic, um, then we have that, that spiritual lapse is, is a huge problem, an enormous problem. Well, I guess we're just going to keep talking about that. But I, I want to be sure early in our conversation that we incorporate the really important work that you and your colleagues at the Mises Institute do. So for our members of the audience who may be less familiar or need a reminder, two-part question, Jeff. What's, what's the thrust of the research that you do? And secondly, does any of that research actually engage in this critique that you just offered? It's of America writ large. It's not just of, of libertarianism by any stretch of the imagination. In other words, what are the, what are the solutions that you and your colleagues would offer? Well, I think it's, it's all very important in that nothing conservatives care about, or really, if at least honorable progressives care about, not, none of that is made better by a worse economy. <laughs> that in, is in true. other words, if we're less prosperous, then all of our social and cultural problems intensify, right? Uh, jobs are scarcer, money's harder to come by. I, I mean, uh, that's going to, to bleed out into social strife. I mean, you know, when, when the economy's bad, uh, people tend to turn on, on one another, more factionalism and tribalism. So first and foremost, if we want a better economy, uh, I th- we have to understand uh, what underpins that? How, how do we get rich? How did we get rich? What if it all went away? I mean, these are pretty serious questions. So from, from my perspective, the perspective of my, of my organization, e- economics has lost its way. It stopped being a helpful or useful social science to help us actually be healthier, wealthier, happier. Isn't that the role of a discipline like economics? Not just to be a jobs sinecure for PhDs. No, it's supposed to help society improve. So not only is it lost sight of that, but I think it's actively doing harm in that it's, it's promoting uh, really a, a form of misinformation. In other words, people have come in the 20th century and now 21st to treat economics, which after all is a human social science. We're, not, we're talking about humans with all their fallibilities and emotions and preoccupations. We're not talking about molecules or atoms in, in, in the natural world. Okay, they took a social science and they tried to make it physics. They tried to say, well, let's look at the data and make a hypothesis and then go out and test it empirically. Okay, like we would with a chemistry experiment or with physics. Well, as a result of that, it became this this exercise in modeling and statistics and mathematics and, and economists lost sight of the human element, the, the living, breathing idea that, you know, humans go out there and we can know a lot of things about them uh, just axiomatically. You know, we know, for instance, you'd rather have your dream home at age 40 than age 92. All things equal. We can know that, right? Because we have limited time here on Earth. Okay, so we can take axioms like that and we can look at what humans do and we can deduct things and we can use that knowledge to help us try to figure out how to build that happier, healthier, wealthier world. But when we get stuck in stats and, and testing and empiricism, economics becomes this thing, well, you know, if we just sort of twist this dial and adjust this interest rate, um, we, can, we can somehow engineer prosperity. And that's, that's just not true. They're, the only way, this is so critical, the only way a society gets wealthier is through capital accumulation. 
okay? People go out there and do things. Our ancestors did this. We have a cultural inheritance. They, they build things up and they consume less than they produce, and they leave something left over for the next generation. That builds, that compiles, and this includes knowledge. Okay, we're not blank slaters. It's really here. important to remember that. Not, we're not tabla rasa. So that knowledge accumulates, that capital accumulates. You, you put more and more of that capital into innovation, into technology, so we begin to produce more and more goods and services more and more cheaply. Okay, that's how human beings, that's how human material well-being, not necessarily spiritual, material well-being improves. It's not by trying to engineer things with fiscal or monetary policy. If we could simply, you know, uh, engage with the right tinkering on monetary policy, then, you know, poor countries in Africa could just do that and, and boom, they'd be wealthy. But none of that tinkering, none of what Congress does, none of what the Treasury does, none of what the Fed does, none of that creates actual new goods and services, okay? You can give every American a million dollars tomorrow, if you had an instantaneous way, and they don't, by the way, the stimulus checks proved how screwed up this is. But if you could somehow drop a million bucks evenly into every American's bank account tomorrow, there wouldn't be a single new Honda Accord. There wouldn't be a single new hairdresser. Prices would adjust and we'd be the same as we were before. So we've mistaken the idea of money for wealth. And we have mistaken economics as akin to the physical sciences. And we have politicized it to the point where, frankly, you know, I, I think millions of Americans just don't believe in economic science. They don't think it's real. They think it's just sort of a BS intellectual cover for these rich capitalists, you know, the Cokes, to go promote their own interests. And they don't, they simply don't believe in it. I mean, this would be akin to, you know, trying to fly an aircraft without understanding gravity and lift and thrust, or trying to build a bridge without understanding the mathematics behind the, the weight that you, uh, of a load of a truck you want that bridge to bear. Well, that's, in, in my view, uh, how America is sort of flying blind today. We're ignoring economics. We're economics deniers. And, and I understand very much the critique on you know, the new right. Uh, we call that the national conservative right, whatever, that, that conservatism just sort of fell prey to this unbridled, uh, free market ideology, and it lost sight of the human element. And that's sort of a different conversation. But, um, you know, the Mises Institute exists, I hope, in my view, to help teach average people uh, to understand real economics, to do an end run around academia, to appeal to the intelligent lay person and say, you know what? This isn't heart surgery. This isn't rocket science. You can understand economics and you need to understand it at least superficially if you are going to be an educated person out in the world. If your kids are going to be educated people, you wouldn't let them leave school not knowing how to read or make change at a cash register. So if you, if you let them leave school not understanding basic economics, they are vulnerable to the politicians, the, the promises, um, and basically the fantasy thinking which, which animates the left, which is that we are in a post-scarcity world. And that all we got to do is divvy it up better. And that mean, terrible people, capitalists, are the, the reason why. And so um, I hope that the Mises Institute is an alternative school of sorts for, uh, for a lay audience. That's the goal. 
That's a really good way of putting it, I think. And and so we can put labels off to the side, libertarian, conservative off to the side. One of the many valuable parts or aspects of the Mises Institute is what you just said. And so if someone's in the audience and whether they're working in policy here in D.C. or a state capital or they might be a parent of middle or high school kids or, or even younger and they're thinking, oh, my gosh, what Jeff Dice just said, I believe. That is to say you know, they, they've been duped by – the two things, the the rotten fruit of the centralization of power and wielding that power with the the auspices of economics. But secondly, they might have taken an economics class or two in college as part of their their curriculum. And it was it was number crunching mm-hmm. all the time. And while numbers are very important to economics, even for this historian, numbers are very important in the research that that I used to do. The point is that it's behavioral. It's a behavioral science. And it, it seems to me, Jeff, that what you're arguing for and what Mises is doing is, is a return to a proper understanding of economics before we even get to the, the policy repercussions of that. Speaking of policy repercussions, if I gave you the proverbial magic wand and you could change two or three things in terms of policy, I presume these would be at the federal level. What would you argue for? Oh, boy, this would be tough. And you wouldn't want to hurt people in the interim. You know, when we talk, let's get rid of Social Security or something like that, that would hurt a lot of people in the interim. And I think, you know, you have to consider that. I, I you know, my, my young self would have said that. And, um, but clearly, I think my number one wish list goal would be the denationalization of money. In other words, the separation of the production of money from any government or central bank. That would be the ultimate wish list because to me, money is a commodity which can and ought to be produced by the market. In other words, we don't, you know, as conservatives, we don't really love, you know, let's have an energy policy. Let's have an automotive policy. Let's have a housing policy. We say, no, no, no. Market entrepreneurs can figure that out. And when Washington, D.C. mucks around with that, it gets worse and more expensive. in my strong opinion, the same thing is true of money. Uh, you know, gold worked just fine for a long, long time, and that, that may well have been replaced. I'm not a technological Luddite. I mean, that's not for me to say. That's for the market to say. But you know, what could be money and separating it from central banks, which are inherently, inherently political actors, no matter what anybody says about their independence, that's, that's simply not rational to believe that. So the idea that Central banks are necessary, and that government provision of money is necessary are, in my opinion, two of the biggest myths and ills of our time. So you are, in addition to that wonderful response, one of the things that has intrigued me about your work and your leadership, not just of your organization, but you as a a leader of of center-right thinking in the United States, is your, your thoughtful critiques of the movement writ large but in particular, libertarianism. And I say that not to participate in a gratuitous, empty critique of libertarianism. It is a vital part of the center-right movement. But to say your thoughtfulness on that, your critiques of that, I think are lessons for all of us. Because I'm, I'm then going to ask you the follow-up question about critiques of conservatism and, and all of that. The point is to have a conversation that really provokes thought for people who are watching or listening to this. Well, I think libertarianism was originally conceived as an exceedingly narrow legal doctrine um, relating to the use of force and what's proper in society. And, and you can draw conclusions from that anywhere down to sort of strict constitutional limited government to a minarchist system all the way to anarchism, I mean, depending on 
on how you want to take it. But uh, unfortunately, I think it's devolved somewhat into uh, a, a Beltway version of, uh, of a, let's just say, a liberation theology, uh, uh, you know, uh, an idea of uh, self-help, the idea that the, the whole point of libertarianism is not simply to, to uh, you know, get the government out of the way of your life, but to allow you to engage in self-actualization and as some sort of uber-hyper-individualized person. And of course, that's just complete nonsense. I mean, human beings are you know, social animals. Um, and so libertarian has come to encompass a host of left cultural precepts. Um, you know, everything's got to be about sex and sexuality and expression and, and, and this and that. Um, open borders, which I think is, a, is just a crazy disaster. And, and so, um, you know, there's some tensions there between, I, I guess, what I would consider more economic or uh, market property centric libertarians who are, you know, look, private property and, and private ownership of capital, capitalism, the means of production, private hands, that yields a lot of conclusions uh, versus the publicly held version of our left-wing friends, which yields the counter-conclusions. Counter um, so I think libertarianism has gone off the rails a bit, but I still think it offers a useful critique of state power in the sense that uh, state power is is very hard to limit once it's created. History um, has proven that to be correct. That states can't calculate in the monetary or economic sense. They can't produce a coherent profit and loss sheet for, let's say, what HHS does all day, right? How would you ever how would you ever ascribe even the most subjective value to that? Um, and so, it, and it's far too centralized. Um, you know, I think that. Uh, having everything in Washington, D.C., uh, I, I think the 20th century in the Supreme Court was an unmitigated disaster. I think, and a lot of conservatives would probably disagree with me here, I think the, the, uh, the sort of the standard issue interpretation of the 14th Amendment is wrong, and I think that's a mistake. Um, and I think we have, you know, fallen into this arms race where so much is seemingly decided in D.C. And, and, and I'd like to think libertarianism once offered a critique of that. But now um, it, it has become uh, more of a, I guess, a social movement. And I'm not interested in that. Thanks for that response. Let's turn that lens of critique onto conservatism. What, what would you say? What, what, what charge would you give me or heritage or you know, people who are, are more commonly associated with, with mainstream conservatism? Well, I would say let it rip <laughs> because, you've got, I mean, this is just an unprecedented time and opportunity. I mean, uh, you know, so, so many of these old factions, it's, it's astonishing how quickly they've fallen away. I mean, you just talked to Ed Fulner recently. I mean, think of what he could tell you about the old days, whereas now, you know, the, you know, the, the, the National Review and Never Trump bulwark types, now they have chosen to separate themselves, but, uh, but there's a lot of vitality in like the Claremont Institute, from my perspective, uh, and, and, and some other organizations like that. I, I happen to love Chronicles Magazine and Paul Gottfried and Edward Welsh. Um, I'm a big fan there. Um, there's a lot of things going on culturally where younger people are starting to recognize that maybe this deracinated individualism and being single forever. And maybe I should have kids. Maybe I should rethink abortion. You know, all these things have become counterculture of a sort. And so 
the the number one lesson from my perspective, and and I, I I'm very much a social and cultural conservative. I'm I'm politically very much a radical. You know, I'm I'm a political and economic radical. There's no other term for it. But I'm it, but that's very different from my sort of worldview, uh, which is which is conservative. And so first and foremost, you know, Trump had to happen. Trump had to happen. It's good that Trump happened. The, the progressives had this narrative arc of inevitability. You know, this is inevitable. Socialism is scientific. You know, Hillary Clinton's going to be the first female president. And from a feminist perspective, I mean, could, could you choose a more rotten, corrupt, criminal human being to be the first woman president? I mean— No, I can't think of anyone. I mean, so if nothing else—look, I, I, I'm just going to say, you know, Trump kneecapped the Bush and Clinton crime families— for good and all, who had become that okay that 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 movement those of of those two families after they left office had had really accelerated that progressive arc to use your well, metaphor. It, I think you're spot on, it, and so it, it had to be narrative, an arc. It, exactly. Right? So he had to happen. It was never about Trump himself. It was never about his policies, folks. Presidents aren't supposed to have policies. They're supposed to execute the policies of Congress. Why are we talking about presidential policies? But anyway, it was never about his cabinet. It was never look. We we had no idea who this crazy orange. Uh, TV man was going to be. It, it didn't matter. It is clear that he was not some sort of plant. It's clear that they didn't anticipate him. It's clear that he surprised them. It's clear that they were thrilled that he was the candidate, not Scott Walker or or Mike Huckabee or whomever it might have been, or Jeb Bush. It was clear that they thought Hillary would roll this guy. And that shock, that punch to the face, uh, along with Brexit in, in the same period, okay, those those were so psychologically damaging to the progressive left that they, that they are still, still to this day, lashing out, lying about it, Russiagate. I mean, they have, they have still not psychologically come to terms with that. And so that's why Trump was necessary, to, to stop the inevitable flow, the march of progressivism, and have that shock. But now, people like you, you know, the question is what now? You got to pick up the pieces. I I very much want Donald Trump to go away. I think he, at this point he is he's bad. I think he would get beaten again by Joe Biden, probably more soundly. Uh, you know, that's personal opinion. I I, like there, I know that there's a lot of Trump fans out there, but but I think you're fans of the idea of Trump. It's about Trumpism. It's about the future. about Trumpism. He's clearly uh, you know incredibly thin-skinned and incredibly venal, incredibly bad manager. Uh, you know, prone to emotional or aggressive outbursts, not disciplined, loved flattery, loved court intrigue around him. If you read Bob Woodward's book, Fear, and Woodward's no fan of Trump, but Trump was facing open insubordination, the same kind that JFK faced from his own chiefs of staff, his own CIA, his own DOD, and his own daughter and son-in-law in these weird little non-official positions right off the Oval Office. So, I mean, there were people were were kneecapping him from day one. So I, again, it wasn't really about Trump. It was about Trump having to happen. So now that Trump happened, you know, I, I'm not I, I'm not sure that I that I know what to tell the right. I, I I'm not sure that Ron DeSantis plays that well outside Florida. I think people are maybe overestimating that. But do you think? And neither you nor I are making endorsements or non-endorsements. We're just having a conversation as observers. Do you think that the appeal of someone like DeSantis, and there there may be other other candidates out there, um, potential candidates, is that they are perceived as being willing to shake things up? Yeah, I mean, ab- absolutely. DeSantis is a strong figure. He did a great job with COVID. 
And unlike Trump, he's disciplined. Unlike Trump, he has actually executed, right? He's executed, took on Disney. And, and, and done so in a way that for Americans, especially on the center right, maybe a few on the left, they understand that this, again, I just love this, this metaphor you use about the progressives, this narrative arc, that has to be interrupted as often as we can in the 2020s in order to take back self-governance for the American people. So all of that to say, it's clear to me, Jeff, that we're just going to have to have you back many times because you've got a plane to catch. And so this will have to be the last question for now. But we'll, we'll place a, a pause on this. Maybe this will be part one of part two. We'll come back to this before 2024. I want to home in on in this last question about whether you're optimistic about the American future. Because even though we've not known each other long, I gather that there is, like there is in most American conservative right of center people, a sense that we're going to figure it out. But you're also very sober about the depths of the problems that we face. What's your assessment there about the future of America? I don't think it's particularly ideological. Mm. Um, no offense, I think public policy is just politics. We don't take at, offense at, on the show. At, at this point, public policy is just politics. It's, it's kind of a wrestling to con control the apparatus. Would not disagree with that. Um, a couple of years ago, there, before COVID, but during Trump, there was a PBS documentary called, I think it was America Divided, and they interviewed people like Robert Reich, but they had Steve Bannon. And Bannon said, you know, we are in post, I think he used the term post-persuasion America. So he said, you know, he pulled out his cell phone. We had these little tiny things in our pockets that have all of human history and knowledge in them. You can look up anything you want. You can go look up anybody's voting record. You can go look up anything you want. Um, and yet people are more dug in than ever. So this idea that we just need to persuade the left with our superior logical arguments, I think just fundamentally misunderstands human nature and, and how human beings work. Now, you know, are we inherently tribal? Yes, I, th I think we are. But we don't want that to devolve into something nasty or racial in America. We want that to be something where we say, look, um, how, how do we live together? And, and for me, the, the 21st century is not about ideology, you know, socialism versus capitalism. That was the 20th century question. I don't think that's the 21st century question. I think it's who decides. And I, I think that localism is the best opportunity to sort of begin to ring fence uh, progressives and say, look, you know, the only way they will ever leave, uh, you know, any of America alone is, is if they get punched in the nose a couple of times like they did with Trump. And so if this, if this doctrine of inevitability gets shaky, then maybe they start to realize, hey, look, we too were wrong in centralizing everything in D.C. And, and counting on the Supreme Court. Look, oh, my gosh, all of a sudden they've got Kavanaugh and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dad. We made a mistake. Well, guess what? Guess what us decentralist conservatives have been, have been yelling, screaming for decades, right? There's too much power in D.C. So I would like to see that radically devolved to states, radically. Um, I, you know, I, I'm perfectly happy uh, to let California... Uh, have its own abortion laws. I, I, I understand that, you know, people in the audience may disagree with that, but I, I'm perfectly happy to let California have an assault weapons ban. I, I happen to disagree, but I, I'm also a constitutional radical. I mean, I don't, I don't agree with the 14th Amendment idea that it incorporated the first 10 to states. I think that could have been done with an amendment that said, you know, the first 10 amendments are hereby expressly 
applied to states. And they didn't do that at the time because they couldn't have passed such an amendment. Okay, I'm with Brian McClanahan, this historian on that. I, but I, my good friend Judge Napolitano completely disagrees with me on the 14th Amendment. He, you know, he can he could probably out argue me all day on incorporation. But you know, as a pragmatic measure, you know, neither side has a very good answer to you know what should we do with these terrible, horrible Nazis we hate so much. You know, I, I mean, the left's answer seems to be well, they need to be vanquished. And that, to me, is an unacceptable answer. So the right's got to be willing to wield power when they have it. And so we will leave the conversation there for now. But if you're willing, sure, I want to have you back. Because this, this has been as thought-provoking as I knew it would be. So Jeff Dice, president of the Mises Institute, thanks for joining me. Thank you. I hope that left you wanting more because we're going to have Jeff back soon enough. And of course, we're both grateful to you for helping to make this show and shows like it. I'm sure Mises Institute has some some great podcasts possible. We'll be back next week with another riveting guest, perhaps maybe not as thought provoking as our friend Jeff, but nonetheless worth tuning into. Take care. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.